0: Subscribe to The Spectator this Christmas and get the next 12 weeks of print and online access as well as a bottle of Paul Roger champagne, all for just £12. This offer is available in the UK only. Go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash Santa to subscribe.
1: Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week we ask a few of our writers to read their piece from the magazine Aloud. On today's episode, Owen Matthews looks at Russia's exiled media. Christopher Howes says Handel's Messiah is as much a Christmas tradition as a pantomime. And Olivia Potts gives her recipe for boiled fruitcake. First up is Owen Matthews.
2: Before Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine, there was a narrow but clearly defined space for Russia's opposition media. The fearlessly anti-Kremlin Novaya Gazeta whose editor-in-chief Dmitry Muratov was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize last year, was not only tolerated, but funded by a regime-friendly oligarch at the behest of the deputy head of Putin's presidential administration, Sergei Kirienko. Radio station Echo Moskvi was owned by Gazprom Media, but regularly aired scathing criticisms of the regime. And the independent Dojd TV – That's TV Rain, Their motto, the optimistic channel, continued to broadcast online from increasingly cramped Moscow offices as advertisers and landlords were pressured to pull their support. Even as the Kremlin's lavishly funded and ubiquitous propaganda machine filled the airwaves and Internet with nationalistic anti-Western vitriol, Russians interested in alternative viewpoints could still freely access independent reporting from opposition journalists in Moscow. After the invasion, however, that space snapped shut. A law was passed in the Duma punishing the speaking of fake news defined as anything not confirmed in defence ministry statements with up to 15 years in prison, instantly criminalising every opposition journalist in Russia. Novaya Gazeta and Echo Moskvy were shut down, and their staff, along with those of Dojd and the English-language Moscow Times, fled. Some Russian journalists ended up in Tel Aviv, others in Tbilisi, Georgia, and Yerevan in Armenia. The Latvian capital of Riga became the obvious to- choice for Dojd TV in exile, as well as the newly founded Nova Gazeta Europe, one reason was that Medusa, another independent media resource set up by former journalists from the Lenta.ru newswire and funded by the exiled anti-Putin oligarch Mikhail Khodorkovsky, was already based there. Its motto: "Quotes make the Kremlin sad." End quotes. Another was that a third of the population of Riga are ethnic Russians. The anti Putin exiles believed they and their independent journalism would be welcome. They were wrong. This month, Latvia's media regulator, the National Electronic Mass Media Council, cancelled Doge TV's broadcasting license, citing quote, threats to national security and public order, end quote, and fined them 10,000 euros. Dojdi's crime. In a report on Putin's mobilization drive, the news anchor Alexey Karastyelev asked viewers to provide information about the terrible conditions facing called-up Russians and said, We hope we can help many service members, for example, with equipment and basic amenities at the front." Dojd also showed a map of Russia that included the annexed Crimean Peninsula. The reaction from the Latvian authorities and from Ukrainian netizens was extreme and immediate. The Latvian Minister of Defence, Artis Pabrikis, called on the channel to, quote, return to Russia, while the country's state security service also urged authorities to bar Karasteliev from entering the country and warned editor-in-chief of Dost, Tichon Diedko, of potential criminal liability. Dojda apologised and immediately fired fired Krestilya for misspeaking, but its licence was yanked anyway, to the delight of the Kremlin. Quote, ''It seems to some people that other places are better than home, that other places have freedom and that there's no freedom at home.'' Crowed Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov. "Quotes: ''This example demonstrates the fallacy of such illusions.'' The popular TV host Olga Skabeva chimed in that the Dojd ban proved that quote, the so called freedom of speech in Europe is a lie. In truth, the staff of Dojd, and indeed of Medusa or of Novra Gazeta, are passionately anti Putin. I have responsibility as a Russian citizen for this war, as a journalist too. And I must do what I can to bring this idea home to a Russian society that is living in a bubble of propaganda, says Mikhail Fischmann, the anchor of one of Dozhd's most popular news programmes. It is my duty to bring the truth about this war to the Russian public. If 10 or 20 Russians see my reports and as a result tear up their call-up papers, then we will have done some good. So why the torrent of hatred? An anonymous graffiti artist summed it up when he or she scrawled, no Russians welcome here good or bad on a a wall in Tbilisi, expressing the resentment widely held in many of Russia's neighbouring countries against anti-Putin Russians who have chosen to flee rather than fight the Putin regime at home. In September, Poland, Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania banned all Russians from visiting for anything other than business or family visas. Even before the ban, Latvian authorities refused to issue more than 13 work visas for Dojt's 100-strong editorial staff. An immigration and tax official visited the offices with, quote, more inspections than we ever experienced in Moscow, said a former senior Dojt executive. Many European politicians, including former Swedish Foreign Minister Carl Bildt, have condemned Latvia's move as playing into the Kremlin's hands. Mikhail Ziger, a political writer and former editor-in-chief of Dojt, strongly suspects the involvement of the Kremlin in the takedown of Dojt, in which passionately anti-Putin netizens played the part of useful dupes. Whether at the Kremlin's behest or not, someone took considerable pains to search out old clips of dodged anchors appearing to express support for the annexation of Crimea, publishing them without context, when in fact they had been speaking ironically. One function of Russia's exiled media is to act as a, focal point and uniting factor for Russian emigres who have no leadership, no institutions and nothing to unite behind, says Sigurd. But a much more vital function is to reach an audience inside their homeland and persuade them of a different narrative to the Kremlins. Hence, Dojdi's controversial references to the Russian military as our army, and indignation at the terrible treatment of called-up soldiers, a key concern of many of Doge's estimated 3.5 million YouTube channel subscribers inside Russia, who account for at least half their audience. Exile publications have long played a key role in creating change inside Russia itself. From Iskra, Lenin's early socialist newspaper printed in Leipzig, Geneva, and even Clerkenwell, London, to the so called Taimizdat emigre publications smuggled into Russia during the Soviet period. During the Cold War, the US's Voice of America and Radio Liberty and the BBC's Russian service also received lavish funding for their key role in getting non official news into Russia. But those were Western voices. Dojd, Medusa, and Novaya Gazeta are recognizably made by Russians for Russians and that, to some, is their original and unforgivable sin.
1: That was Owen Matthews, and now Christopher Howes.
3: It was 9.45pm, and yellow light beamed from the church windows into the rainy night. As I opened the door, the last bars of the Hallelujah Chorus reverberated from the chancel. This was a rehearsal by the London Docklands Singers, Everyone knows the Hallelujah Chorus, said the conductor, Andrew Campling. It's in the DNA of the public. In his 33 years conducting, he's put on Handel's Messiah 10 or 12 times. He can't help laughing at the judgment of the librettist of Messiah, Charles Jennings, who in 1743 wrote of Handel in a letter... His Messiah has disappointed me, being set in great haste, though he said he would be a year about it and make it the best of his compositions. I shall put no more sacred words into his hands to be thus abused. Handel made a few revisions, and the two men soon worked together again, on the Oratorio Belshazzar. Messiah has never fallen out of popularity. It's as English a thing to go to hear it at Christmas time as to go to a pantomime. This year, Hereford Choral Society is performing it in the cathedral by candlelight. And on the same day, Harrogate Choral Society will sing it in the Royal Hall of the Spa Town. It works with vast choirs or almost as a chamber work. Andrew Campling started the London Docklands Singers in 1992 with eight or nine members. Now there are 65. It's certainly not a Canary Wharf banker's hobby choir. Singers from many backgrounds live on the Isle of Dogs or travel from elsewhere in London on the good transport connections. Their ages run from students to pensioners. Campling's father still sings, aged 95. There are no auditions, but new members are expected to be able to read music, turn up regularly, and not put off the others. I've only had to ask one person in all these years to take a break and have singing lessons, uh, says Campling. He read theology at Keble College, Oxford, in the 1970s, and has made music ever since, but he's careful not to impose his beliefs on the singers, recalling the saying of Elizabeth I, I have no desire to make a window into men's souls. It's physically good to sing, he says, and good socially. The pandemic showed the importance of this and raised the profile of choirs. He felt quite emotional when he welcomed the singers back after lockdown. This year, new members swelled numbers by a sixth, In Messiah, Campling is struck musically by a passage that's rather the opposite of the Hallelujah chorus, the quiet a cappella four-part harmony of since by man came death, followed by a sort of marching chorus accompanied by the orchestra. By man came also the resurrection of the dead. It's the 46th number in the oratorio, but the two hours or so of music is no strain on audiences being, it seems to me, more like a musical with catchy items welcome for their familiarity. Last month, the Dockland Singers performed the oratorio at St Paul's Covent Garden and on the 17th of December will sing it at St Augustine's on oak park in South London. Campling's grandfather was the rector there. It's a lovely place to perform, he says, There's a special atmosphere on the hill. St Augustine of Canterbury Church has stood since 1873 on one tree hill. It's built of rustic Kentish ragstone, its walls resembling vertical crazy paving, but the hill, being of clay, gives the church a tendency to slide down it, leaving cracks visible inside. This one goes in and out according to the weather, says Canon Colin Boswell, the priest in charge, pointing to a fine specimen in the North Isle. At Honour Oak Park, there was outrage in 1897 at an attempt to fence off One Tree Hill. A crowd of 15,000 people pulled the fences down, sang "Rule Britannia and then dispersed. They won a legal fight, and it became a park, now a nature reserve, which means an undergrowth of brambles with old plane trees mixed with oaks and hawthorns. Certainly more than one tree. It's not all leafiness. On the northern marches of the parish, a 25-acre estate of four-storey blocks was built between the walls, into which more than a thousand people were decanted from so-called slums. In some of the new blocks, a bathroom was shared between three flats. Shops were distant. There was no pub. Many missed a feeling of community. St. Augustine's is gothic with Lancet nave windows and some white arcades behind the old high altar, heavily crocketed like a Christmas cake piped with royal icing. It's a listed building, grade two. And on historic England's at-risk register, with the status slow decay, that sounds a little unfair to work that's been done over the past decade to beautify it. Banners made by children brighten the walls, and I sat next to a brightly worked hassock. One of the Docklands singers is the Reverend Dr. Michael Brooks, who urges me to call him Michael. He's a real doctor a medical doctor and serves at St. Augustine's as a non-stipendiary clergyman. He doesn't get paid. Music has meant a lot to him. I enjoy singing for the praise and glory of God, he says. It's also a way of communicating to other people when ordinary words sometimes fail. We speak after coffee and fresh apple cake in the parish room following a Sunday morning Eucharist attended by 30 or 40 people. Singing in a choir is socially cohesive, Michael says. I enjoy the company of the choir, and it is a privilege to produce something of worth and value. The performance before Christmas is classified as an act of worship. The canon plans to read the collect for Good Friday before it begins, Handel raised money for the Foundling Hospital in London. Their performance at St. Augustine's raises funds for St. Christopher's Hospice. In the oratorio, the canon's favourite hair is sung by the alto, I know that my Redeemer liveth. Certainly the words from the book of Job chosen by Jennings make a powerful combination with the musical setting, and though worms destroy this body, Yet in my flesh shall I see God. Earlier this century, St Augustine's actually closed for a couple of years through lack of clergy and the prospect of expensive repairs. It's impressive to see what three men can do to revivify the worship of a church. Callan Boswell, pale and thin, has been 50 years a priest and does not get paid either. But he is allowed a place to live Father Mark Hill is also non-stipendiary and, like the canon, comes from the Anglo-Catholic side of things. Michael is from a more evangelical background. We're pretty straight down the wicket, says Canon Boswell, who wants to put no obstacle in the way of people coming to church. At Easter, St Augustine sees 115 worshippers, perhaps. Messiah brings in 400.
1: That was Christopher Howes. And finally, Olivia Potts. This
0: time last year, I was disgustingly well organised. Awaiting the arrival of my first baby, with a late December due date, I'd ensured everything was squirrelled or squared away. I'd bought all my presents by October, wrapped them by December. I'd made my Christmas cakes and bought my Terry's chocolate orange. For the first time in my life, I sent Christmas cards to everyone in my address book. I'd even made and frozen the gravy weeks in advance. It was my way of nesting. The baby could arrive when it liked. I was prepared. It can feel that every homemade edible component of Christmas demands commitment. Puddings, cakes, mincemeat, it should all be made wildly in advance and given time to mature. Well, that level of forward planning has gone out of the window. I now have a nearly one-year-old who is tearing around like a wind-up terrapin and I'm juggling him, work and general life admin. Even if I'd had the wherewithal to start my Christmas cake months ago, the chances of me remembering to feed it are slim. Luckily, there is another answer. Its name may not commend it to you. It's also sometimes called a simmer and stir cake, but a boiled fruit cake makes up for lost time. It's a simple concept, really. Before baking, the dried fruit is simmered together with quite a bit of fruit juice and booze, dark sugars, treacle and butter, for just 10 minutes, gently bubbling and blooping away, by which time the fruit will be plump and glossy, soft and moist. It will, incidentally, smell fantastic, as if you have magicked up the spirit of Christmas in your kitchen. But most importantly, it doesn't need to be made in advance and doesn't need feeding once baked and cooled. There is no aging needed You can make it on Christmas Eve and it will still be absolutely perfect, rich and complex, damp and spiced on Christmas Day. I embarked on this kind of cake as a necessary experiment, but I'm now a true evangelist. I'm not sure I'll be going back to the do-ahead version. This is a truly last-minute cake, but no lesser for that. There are other bonuses to this method. No creaming of butter and sugar is needed, which is always a bit of a chore and it requires a considerably shorter baking time than a standard fruit cake, which, frankly, given current energy prices, is enough to recommend this cake even if it weren't an excellent thing in its own right. There's also real wiggle room with the cake, as there should be. If you're making it in the run-up to Christmas, you really don't want to have to do a supermarket run to source a particular type of raisin or skin-on almonds when you only have blanched. As long as you have roughly the right weight of dried fruit and of nuts, you can substitute in whatever you have or fancy. I use a combination of halved glacé cherries, sultanas, raisins, cranberries, and chopped apricots and dates, but that's just because I had them in my cupboards. Similarly, I simmer my fruit in pineapple juice and dark rum, because they're my favourites, and my mother always used pineapple in her fruitcakes. But orange and apple juice work well, and any high-proof sweet alcohol will do. Brandy and sherry are classics. You can lose the alcohol, but unlike a fed fruitcake, it will evaporate before baking, leaving the flavour. Knowing that this isn't a cake which is going to have to survive months in a larder, although it will if you need it to, I've gone in a slightly different direction to my usual marzipan and royal icing decoration. I glaze the top of the cake with apricot jam, and then place whole dried fruit, big fat medjool dates, pert glacé cherries and cubes of crystallised ginger, alongside pecans and walnuts. And then paint again with more jam. The fruit and nuts glow like jewels and are significantly more elegant than my usual hastily decorated snow scene. If you are lucky enough to have access to proper candied fruit, then these, piled up proudly on top of the cake, would make it a particularly beautiful centrepiece. And if you'd like to make it yourself, you can find a link for the full recipe in the podcast description.
1: That was Olivia Potts and that's it for this episode of Spectator Out Loud. Thank you for listening and do join us again in the new year.